right. Welcome to the Creating Structure podcast uh, with John Wheaton. Great to have you all. Thanks for listening uh, so far to our eight podcasts. We appreciate our audience, not only from North America, but from around the world. I'm super excited today to have Brian Fraley from Fraley Construction Marketing. Right, Brian? Yes, sir. Thank you, John. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you today? Doing outstanding. Outstanding. That's great to hear. So, Brian, um, we're going to jump right into it. Um, our audience um, comes from a variety of construction and architecture and business and life kind of perspectives. So why don't you tell us who you are, where you're from, what your background is, um, and what your training and education looks like? Well, um, I started out, I usually tell people that I lived uh, just inside and across the border of Northeast Philadelphia. Um, Spent a lot of time in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and uh, you know, pretty pretty standard upbringing. Um, high school, college, uh, college. I took an unconventional route. Mm-hmm. Um, I had actually, ironically, as we're looking at all these workforce development issues today in the construction industry, I had investigated trade schools at the time. Uh, looked into carpentry specifically. Um, and I ended up taking a different route. Believe it or not, at the time, my dad had a, a small agency, and we did something very similar to what I do today. We were providing public relations and advertising for uh, heavy construction companies, namely equipment companies. Um, and uh, it's a very long story, but uh, I had done work with him dating back to junior high school and high school, Um, even in the old days of print. I mean, stuffing envelopes, doing some editing of press releases, you name it, some light photography duties. And uh, I ended up going to work with him for the first couple of years until we got acquired by a printing company. And uh, they liked the niche that we had carved out. And uh, he ran that probably for a good 12 years. And I worked with him for about three years. Uh, So that kind of laid the groundwork a little bit, Uh, you know, because I I came up in a, uh, one of these multi-generational heavy construction families, you know, founded back in 1927. Yeah. Talk about that, the the, the heavy construction family. So apart from the agency, your dad had this, you are from heavy construction. Your relatives were in the construction business. Absolutely. Um, yeah, my my great grandfather, who was it's one of these stories, the uh, blood, sweat, and tears stories. You know, 1927 is when he started the company. Um, came here about 1905. Dirt poor, raised enough money to buy a piece of equipment and went into business for himself. And um, the company ended up, you know, from the early 1900s all the way up until the 1980s, you know, four brothers ran the company together and they had a great thing going. I mean, they were uh, they were known for mass excavation. That was their niche. They never really expanded outside of that. Uh, no demolition. They never acquired any plants but they really sort of stayed in their lane, so to speak. Um, Also, 
in some ways, I mean, honestly, very, very set in their ways. Um, very old school. Uh, didn't like change. <laughs> you know, so yeah, that was sort of in the DNA. But, you know, being a kid coming up around, uh, you know, that to some extent, I never worked in the company directly because the company had disappeared by the time I came of age. I see. Um, but as a kid, you know, being around that gigantic heavy equipment was always uh, probably in your formative years, you know, it had, it had an influence on me. Sure. And always had a love for the big machinery. <laughs> I'll bet. And if the audience could see the video, because we don't usually publish video, you have some, what my, one of my young, younger sons, when he was little, he used to call yellows. You have a, a you have a, a backhoe and a, uh, a heavy roller on your shelf behind. I see. I love it. Yes. Uh, and um, don't lose sight of your story, but were you like me when you were a kid? Did you play with all kinds of yellow Tonka trucks and move boulders and dirt around? Absolutely. I love it. Absolutely. Um, and, and unfortunately I still do to this day to some extent. <laughs> I don't, I don't use them quite as much, but I can't afford the real iron. So yeah, these will have to do. <laughs> so, so you were on this track that your, your great grandfather started the business, four brothers ran it, but it was, it wasn't um, running by the time you came of age. So what, what happened to that business? Did it just close? Oh, boy, long story. But uh, generally what happened is what happens in a lot of family businesses. Um, you know, there was infighting that took place. Um, there was a lot of different visions um, of where things should go. Uh, it, it was incredible because from the time, you know, that they started with a single bulldozer, mm -hmm. Um, and, and nothing. I mean, the the size of the fleet that they had accumulated, uh, the work that they were doing, and I mean, and they had a reputation that expanded even out in other parts of the country. Uh, you know, their work was primarily in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware, mm -hmm. but um, they would come out onto these 100-acre sites. And I would often say, like, it was like a military operation because they they operated with such precision uh, it was almost scientific, you know, to watch those jobs in action. Um, mm -hmm. You can almost glean that out of some of the old pictures. I have a lot of the old archives. And uh, you can just see it's like very systematic, you know, the lineup of the trucks, you know, placement of a shovel. And I mean, just incredibly efficient operation. Sounds um, fantastic. I love it. It was really neat. You know, it was very inspiring. And I mean, to this day, you know, I, I just I love those stories of, uh, you know, the family businesses, especially the families and the, and the founder that starts with nothing and kind of goes against the odds. You know, I just always believed in those stories um, and just found like that's the American dream, you know. And you guys are part of that story. Exactly. I mean, even though it's sort of a, a you know, an ancient legacy at this point. Um, but, you know, and, and honestly, John, I mean, that's kind of one of the things that attracted me to this industry because, there's still a lot of that spirit left. Um, there's still a lot of those companies. And even, even for the founders that are starting out today, there's just that sort of the belief in capitalism and that you can build something from the ground up. Just always found inspiring. Um, and, I, and I love the companies that we have that fit into that category 
We have one that is uh, the fourth generation has just come into the business. And it's another great legacy story, you know, where the family basically bought into a business back in the early 1900s. And, uh, you know, through a series of founders who had very different visions, they expanded into areas they never would have envisioned. Mm. Um, and I mean, so there's stories, I mean, there's just that, that kind of innovation I, I've just always found incredible, you know, to, to build something great like that. Brian, do you, do you find your uh, clientele in heavy construction more receptive to you as a marketing and PR professional, which is an unusual niche because of that legacy and because of your knowledge of heavy construction and equipment or, or no? Um, I, to some extent, um, I, I think namely because, you know, when I, when I talk to people, especially people that don't know me and new companies, uh, the, you know, the first impression is oftentimes they're, they're not sure that I'm a marketing guy. Um, they almost kind of feel like they're talking to somebody who is either a contractor. I've even had people ask me if I was an engineer once or twice, mm -hmm. which I said, oh, I certainly didn't earn that. I mean, I know the PE is taken very seriously as it now, but um, I, I think the thing is, I think what people usually hear there is that I've just, I've been very fortunate with the path that I've taken uh, in my career, uh, worked around some incredible people, uh, people that I've just considered legends uh, in the industry. And uh, I mean, had the chance, you know, John, to just as a young guy in his 20s to be able to sit in committee meetings with some of these founders of companies, people in Pennsylvania, one of the oldest parts of the country, some of these uh, executives were founders from back in the early 1900s. Um, and to sit there and to hear that wisdom mm -hmm. being shared as, as a young guy. And I just, I, I was very lucky to be around that kind of expertise and to listen and to learn to the greatest extent possible. So I try to kind of bring that forward today, you know, with our customers. Um, yeah, I, so I'm very interested in this uh, path and the mention of the legend. You, you said in kind of some of our planning that you had the opportunity to work with some legendary construction entrepreneurs at a young age. I, I love that statement. Uh, do you have any specifics or any specific stories or was that the essence of it, the last comment? I mean, you, you met some legends. You obviously gleaned some interesting stuff and, and you know, multiple questions. Was it, was it the connection with the advertising business that your father had that you worked for? Is that where you interfaced with them or was it even prior to that as a younger man? Um, <clears throat> sort of a little, a little bit of everything, but the, the real exposure came when I took a job. Um, I was with a company. It was a trade association for the highway industry out in Harrisburg, which of course is our state capital. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was one of these legacy associations that went back to the founding of the highway industry um, and had, I think at one, at one point, we had about 75% of the active bidders on Pennsylvania highway and bridge contracts. So in other words, it had almost everybody that was anybody in that sector of the industry. And uh, a lot of the people that were involved, it was a very executive level group. And so you would have the founders you would have the sons and daughters of the founders. 
Um, and, you know, we did, a, we had a lot of joint meetings with PennDOT and the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission mm-hmm. um, on every topic you could imagine from bridges to safeties to risk allocation, um, even meetings with the legislature, you know, because of course there's politics involved with infrastructure funding, you know, which was one of our objectives. Um, but to be able to deal with those folks um, at that level was, you know, it was really as an educational time for me. I'll bet it was. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit more about your background, too, and then circle back on this. I, I love that you said structure is kind of your middle name. You were a Catholic school kid, <laughs> son of a Marine, um, an organizational <laughs> freak. I, I love that. Um, uh, did you go to school in Pennsylvania? You went to Catholic high school? I, I did. I, I almost I went to Catholic grade school and then I switched to public uh, in junior high school. OK, um, probably a reaction to the discipline. Yeah, uh, just I used to tell people, you know, I grew up in a household with an extreme amount of discipline. Um, and then, you know, so at school and at home. And I guess, you know, when you get to those years and you start to rebel a little bit. Um, I think that's what I was doing, and I transferred. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting, though, because it was a very different environment, and luckily I still kept all the discipline that I learned, you know, during those years. I'll bet. And if your dad um, was a Marine, was your dad a World War II vet? Vietnam. Vietnam vet. Vietnam, yes. Sorry, I know you're a young guy just trying to place that. <laughs> I dated myself. Uh, yeah, no. So he's a, he's a Marine. That's excellent. And, um, where'd you get the organizational freak stuff? Is that part of your nature from a young boy or just because of the discipline in the house? Probably a combination. Um, I think, uh, I think some of it, as I said, runs in the family, uh, because we all tend to be a little bit like that, that very structured Mm -hmm. routine driven, uh, type thing. Um, that's always something, you know, I've had to kind of fight to try to break out of that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I try to try to insert randomness wherever I can and to switch up routines, <laughs> but it's very challenging. Yeah. Do you find, um, do you find routine gives you a solid platform? Are you a guy that where routine kind of allows you to have, to feel like you have more grounding, more creativity to execute the work within your personal and business life? Probably productivity is the main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I oftentimes will like integrate routines or let's say that there's some aspect that I want to build into a routine. That's one thing that I, I'm very good at. I will decide that I want to build that into the routine and I just add it in. And the thing is that I find that routines kind of drive productivity mm-hmm. to some extent. Um, but where I try to break them is on the minimalism side, uh, which is another thing that I look at. I oftentimes look, and you know, this translates into business too, and the way that I look at the marketing that our customers need to do. Um, I tend to be very focused uh, not only on what we need to add, but we what we need to delete. Um, and and because I don't. Because of the structure of the company, we're not set up as a large machine. We don't have a large machine to feed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that also helps to be very objective. So we're not necessarily looking to do what some organizations will do, which is to push companies into unnecessary work mm-hmm. to create revenue and what have you. 
uh, I oftentimes will look from a very objective standpoint and oftentimes will tell customers, I really think we need to stop doing A or B because I don't think that it's getting results. Hmm. Um, to streamline. So, uh, yeah, so streamlining and editing and refining is just one of those things. I think you always need to be sharpening the tool, whether it's in your personal routine or for your customers. I love that. Talk to me about how you started your business. Uh, how did that come to be? Wow. Um, that, was a, that was a crazy story. So um, I guess the first thing that I would say is that I always had the entrepreneurial bug. Mm-hmm. Uh, primarily, again, going back to you know my great-grandfather, I was always inspired by that story and that narrative. Um, and again, you know, uh, my dad having done something similar, you know, he had that bug as well. So I always had that bug, but I had always worked for somebody throughout my career. And um, what happened is, leading up to the Great Recession, I came on board of a civil engineering company at the worst possible time, which was late 2007. And uh, that was the time where, and you probably recall this, a lot of people say 2008, 2009 with the Great Recession But in reality, and it was late 2007 when the private sector, private development really started feeling the pressure. And uh, our company at the time was very much the legacy of this company, which was around 27 years old at the time. They were known for private land development and surveying. Oh, tough business to be in. Very tough business. Uh, And they had done a lot of these large 80, 100-lot subdivisions. That was their strong point. What happened is when I came on board in 2017, I was on the executive executive committee in charge of marketing and business development. Was not a shareholder, but I was on the executive committee. And uh, and I remember at the time, you know, looking at these financial statements and looking at some of the money that was out past 90 that was owed to us, and being in shock, and I, one of the one of the questions I had was, I said, "What becomes of all this money that we have in the outpass ninety column?" And they said, "We're going to have to write that off to bid debt." And uh, I nearly wow. fell out of my chair. Wow! <laughs> I nearly fell out of my chair, John. I mean, I just couldn't believe. Um, and we're, I mean, we're talking about numbers like a hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollars per client. I mean, these mm-hmm. were big numbers. So. <clears throat> I was in shock. And, and, you know, what had happened is developers had just sort of turned off the faucet because they saw the wave coming and uh, con- continue to watch that constrict. And, and what we were trying to do, one of my main missions at the company, what I was tasked with was to take us in a direction to help us gravitate towards more of a public sector focus uh, to where we could start doing some highway design work, bridge design work, uh, doing some work for counties, local municipalities. You know, we also had a strong municipal practice at the time and had a number of municipalities where we were either borough engineers, township engineers, wastewater engineers, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And a lot of that came through an acquisition years before I came on board. And uh, what happened, John, was... Uh, when things really started to get heavy there, 
we started to get into layoffs. Um, we were, when I came on board, about 100 employees, okay. revenue of close to $10 million, mm-hmm. decent-sized company, had done incredibly well leading up to 2007. Um, a lot of growth. And then what happened is when things really hit the fan, um, we had several rounds of layoffs, and uh, it was brutal. We went from about 34 in the first round, 23 in the second round, 11 in the third round. Wow. I mean, we just, that's that's how much of a haircut we were taking. Cut to the bone. Cut to the bone. The absolute bone, all overhead gone. Uh, made a number of other adjustments, too, with existing employee benefits. I mean, it was, it was an incredibly stressful time. Um, and we, there were things that we, without getting too personal, I mean, there were things that we as employees and not shareholders uh, were witnessing, things that we considered mistakes that were made mm-hmm. um, from our point, things that could have been addressed and they weren't. And I watched all that. I watched it closely. I didn't approve of everything, but I also recognize this is, we're not shareholders. We need to just hold the line. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and I knew that my time was going to come at some point because I was 100% overhead in the company. It was a mm-hmm. miracle that I was still there. But uh, the owner of the company had, a, you know, great deal of respect for me and what I was bringing to the table. And I have a huge debt of gratitude to this day for that. Um, so he kind of kept me on board single-handedly. He was a majority shareholder. But we got to the point where another company who was a competitor of ours figured out uh, that there was one gentleman in the company that was tied to a number of municipalities, uh, which goes back to the acquisition of the other company. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very long story, but you may or may not know this, but municipal mm-hmm. engineering, um, there's politics involved, there's relationships, there's legacies sure. that go back. Um And so they figured out that he was tied to a number of these things. And so they ended up hiring him. He was discontented. He was, I think he was an easy target to be Mm -hmm. hired from under us. They hired him and a number of our other engineers that were on his team who were also tied to those municipalities. And I'll never forget the day. um, Within one week, we learned that we lost our two biggest municipal clients. He was taking them with him to the new company, and uh, it was worth a very substantial amount of money, especially for a company at the time, municipals are what was really holding us steady. Mm -hmm. Um, We had some other government work, but private was just, had been decimated. Wow. So I never forget it. I went home that night and I told my wife, I said, one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to get laid off or the company's going to go under. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, you know, during those times of turbulence, I had had discussions with her that I'd like to go out on my own and what better time she was not comfortable with it at the time. But what happened is sure enough, short time later, I was laid off and luckily I had put some thought into it, mm-hmm. but I had about two weeks to figure out what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, And so, you know, I remember at the time I basically got on the phone um, and email 
with some of my contacts, just trying to, I had this theory of what I was going to do and what I felt was an obvious choice. Uh, and I just started testing the idea. And I also looked for opportunities at other, at other companies. Um, I said, let me keep my mind open. But uh, ultimately what it came down to is I just, I didn't want to move into a large company. Um, I'm not a big fan of bureaucracy um, and being a cog in the wheel. So I just decided the only way was either small business where I had always worked or going off on my own. And within about two weeks, I made the decision, went out, got my LLC and just started swinging at the fences. Brian, that's a great story and it's an appropriate story. And I think a lot of our audience could resonate with that, particularly those who have chosen to quote, open their own business or be a solopreneur. Um, and many would probably share a similar story. I, I think it's fascinating, you know, necessity can be the mother of invention, but yet you had this prior experience with your father before that business was acquired to fall back on. So it, in a sense, it was a bit of the, was it a bit of the resurrection of the contemporary version of Fraley Construction Marketing? I think so. I mean, <laughs> because, I, and that, that really was a great, like sort of a proving ground. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I, I used to joke with people that um, people couldn't believe how much I was doing at the time. When I was first hired, fresh out of high school, um, I didn't even have a college degree at the time. I was taking night classes. Um, and basically, I told them the way that we were set up we had a graphic designer. We had my dad who he focused more on like the higher level, a lot of business development, keeping the work coming in, uh, some of the higher level duties. And then I did everything else. Yeah. Um, including payroll taxes, oh, which was really, really strange. I mean, John, you talk about trial by fire. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was I was managing the checkbook, you know, you the big gigantic checkbook that we were using at the time, doing payroll taxes. I mean, pretty much anything that you can imagine. You were getting it. Um, you were getting an MBA before you were twenty-two. Exactly, and uh, and the thing that he'll tell you, like the thing, one of the things that makes us different in the, in our personalities and skill sets, he was never big on the financial side. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that I'm especially strong in financial, but I think I got that from my mom to where mm-hmm. I, I was sort of hard nosed enough, at least when it came to managing money and being particular that I think he looked and said as young and, and, and green as I was at the time, I could probably handle it and do an okay job of it. Well, you know, it, um, it, it manifested itself when you went to the civil firm in 2007, because here you are a marketing professional. And the first thing you told me was, you looked at the accounts receivables list and saw all the over 90. You're probably, I mean, and we do that too. You're probably, you know, maybe you were doing that to glean, um, well, who's our high, who are our retained customers? Show me a customer list. Show me a top-down revenue list. Show me a prospect list. And hey, customers that can't pay or aren't paying, that's not a good customer. Um, you know, and again, the longer the receivables stretch, the more margin one needs to have. So, I mean, that we know there are businesses like Boeing and others, you know, that have long timelines and our consulting division even has much longer pay timelines. 
But, you know, if you're Amazon, if you got a few percent margin, you better be paid up front, right? You got to be liquid. It's, it's true. I mean, um, and, you know, it's funny you mentioned the engineering side because, you know, that was really, I mean, having been primarily on the construction side and, mm-hmm. and more specifically more on the public side, um, it was really interesting to come into a, a multidiscipline firm and to really, for those years, it was about seven years, all said and done, to see the differences just between public and private oh, yeah. uh, was incredible. Because um, I kind of knew the public, but the private, wow. What Workflow, was, payment, what, et cetera. <laughs> what was the wow about it? Less predictable? Too many, like lots more variables compared to public and municipal work? Totally. Um, uh-huh. I oftentimes, the comparison that I've always used, as I said, private work was like a stock and public work was like a bond. Well said. Well you know, said. Um, yeah. Predictable. It was bonds. incredible. Yep. yep. Very predictable. Like the private customers, the developers, we would have those projects were very lucrative. Mm-hmm. Um, no question. And they were oftentimes big dollar projects. The problem is you weren't always going to get paid because you're dealing with a developer and developers are all very different, of course. Mm-hmm. Um including how they treat their subs, engineers, et cetera. Um, whereas the government, you knew you were always going to get paid, but the profit margins were so tight. Um, and it was also interesting to watch the workflow between the two. Even like we would have engineers that focused on public work versus private work. And you could see, I mean, it was such an incredible contrast between the engineers that were working on a PennDOT bridge and those private land development contractors that were working on a subdivision plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, you just, you didn't have, on the private side, you didn't have a choice. And I mean, some of the developers that we were dealing with were really tough developers. Mm-hmm. Aggressive. Which was, <laughs> you know, really, um, if you can picture, I mean, Philadelphia area, New York, New Jersey, yeah. Yeah. you know, a little bit of a different market. Um as it was told to me, like when I couldn't believe we were not going to collect the revenue, it was told to me that if 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 we were ever to try to pursue litigation to collect that money, we're not going to work with that developer again. Exactly. So you really just had to walk away with your tail between your legs. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. In two thousand seven or eight, one of those after with the subprime mortgage crisis, we had a large. Uh, residential high-rise that we were working on in New York City and with a pretty decent client. And li- literally, they picked up the phone one day and they said, stop, we're not sure what we're going to do with this. We're, we're going to do something, but we're not sure what the form is going to take. I had a $210,000 receivable from July to January. And my people were saying, you're never going to collect this. And you know what? They wrote us a check and paid us every dime. Wow. Seven months later. But that's some of the pitfalls of being an you know, entrepreneur. You know, when, when you become an entrepreneur, when you become a business owner, you're taking responsibility for not having a, uh, for not necessarily having a set predictable income. You, one is choosing to be the income generator and to um, taking what may be normal or maybe doesn't exist. And you're, you're working to 
upcycle that and create value into the system and to create more value and opportunity for not only yourself and your family, but for everybody around you. And that's the goal in the business, right? Not only in the business, but with the vendors and constituents and all those attached is to say, hey, the pie can get larger if if we're treating people right, if we're investing into the system, if we're creating new value. It's not static, right? So it's great to have good customers. It, it is. And, and look, I mean, you know how it is. I mean, when you're, depending on the type of your business, sometimes you're swimming in a very small pool mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily get to go outside of those boundaries. You don't have that many customers to choose from. Right. If you're working, let's say in a 30 mile radius or a 60 mile radius, yeah, you have to be very careful about burning those bridges. Right. As opposed to a national. So w- when you've, so you went out on your own. You've obviously, you know, made that happen. There's a couple of questions I have. First of all, when I first got to know you, you were AEC marketing. And then at some point yes. you made a decision. I'm only going back. I'm only going construction, heavy construction. Um, any insights there? Any any reflections on the why? The When I, yeah, that's kind of an interesting story in its own right. Um so when I started out, I, as I said, I was coming right out of the civil engineering industry. Um, it was the only time I had worked there. It was seven years. I was dealing with the entire market, architects, engineers, builders, developers, et cetera, et cetera. And when I started up, I mean, as, as focused as I wanted to be, I thought construction might be a little too focused. And and I thought to myself, you know what? Why don't I just go AEC? Because I have contacts in those areas. I have some knowledge. I, don't, I certainly don't know as much on the engineering and architecture side as I do on mm-hmm. the construction side. But I said, I know enough to where I can fill the niche. And um, what happened, John, you know, it was very interesting. When I made that decision to finally streamline the company down I thought very hard about it. I always had the nagging feeling and I always wanted to be hyper-focused. I just, it's just an area I enjoy maybe because I'm a creature of habit, but I love being hyper-focused. And um, I remember at that point, I said, you know what? I should streamline down. And I, I said, let me do a little analysis here of where the past couple of years have been at. Mm-hmm. And I looked at, the customers and the breakdown. I looked at the projects and who they were for, like the quantity of projects. I looked at the revenue by customer. And then I even went really granular down to how did I feel the projects went? And even some of those more, uh, those gray areas, like how was that job to work on? How was that customer to deal with? Yeah. And, um, I came to a very easy conclusion that really from day one, I'm trying to think of the number. I want to say 86% of our revenue was tied to heavy construction. Wow. Which right there, I, that almost made my decision. Yeah. Why spend time on anything else? Right. Exactly. Um, But then when I went even deeper, I, I looked at the projects that we had done to date and and I thought, okay, which projects didn't go good? I mean, we all have projects that were not, when we look back, we say, oh, that could have gone better. Um, 
I was I, I, at the time I was really proud because I didn't have any complete disasters. There was nothing that I looked at and said, "Wow, that was really bad." We didn't have any major complaints. <laughs> yeah, which I always found shocking. Um, but th- there were a couple projects that jumped out. Um, ironically, one of them was with an architecture company, mm-hmm. and one of them was with an engineering company, and. I, I thought really hard about why did they not go as well as I wanted them to go? And was it, was it me? Was it there? And with the engineering company, there was uh, not to get too deep into it, but there was some drama going on within the company, within a certain department that reflected on us. And we kind of got pulled into, I said, okay, well, there was that. And then on the architecture side, it came down to, um, and I'm sure nobody's going to nobody is going to really uh, relate to this, but it came down to a web design project where the design was in question. Mm. Um, and I, I've always known. I know architects take design very seriously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I knew it already going into it, but we were working on a website for an architecture company and. We were just, we, we kept, we were going through iterations. We're going around and around and around. Um, the design just wasn't there. We were kind of getting frustrated. I sensed that they were kind of frustrated. And I got to the point where I went to them. And I knew one of the principals for a number of years. And I said, listen, I said, we seem like we're kind of stuck in limbo here. We want you guys to be happy. What do we need to do here to get this thing on the right track? And um, after sort of pushing a little bit, they didn't want to come out, but they ultimately said, listen, we we probably should have said this, but could we just give you a JPEG of the design that we want? Oh, and then my. you can translate. Um, and, you know, and, and we were just like... But they were, um, there were a lot of things that we were recommending from a web design standpoint that they didn't want. Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay, okay, we think you should do it, and this is why. Well, we'd rather not do that. We want a little more minimalist. Uh, um, but we finally got there. We, we did wrap up on a positive note. We gave them what they wanted. Um, but when I looked at it, I looked back at that project, and I just said – that was really frustrating. Yeah. Um, it was really frustrating. And uh, John, you, you'll probably relate to this. Uh, the A, the E, and the C, there's a lot of personalities involved. Yes. And a very different way of approaching things. Yes. Um, and I, I found that like we, we were so comfortable on that construction side where it was a very direct um, sort of no-holds-barred communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still love that to this day. Look, this is what we need done. Let's do it. And we do it. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of that we, where, where there was paralysis by analysis, um, where somebody maybe didn't want to come out and say something um, where we could have avoided a lot of lost time. Um, the communication style was always like, I've always felt projects in order for a project to go smoothly I love to just get it out on the table and make sure we're all on the same page and promise people I've got very thick skin. You're not going to hurt my feelings. <laughs> you Gee, know? 
You sound like a guy that comes from a contractor family. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean to tell, no, this won't resonate with anybody. You mean to tell me that contractors from Eastern Pennsylvania, Philly, Jersey, New York tend to be straightforward? Gee, I didn't realize that. You, I'm sure you've never dealt with it. <laughs> I love, I, you know what? You know exactly where you stand with a subcontractor or a contractor in New York or in Jersey or in Philly, like to tell it, here's where you stand with us. And I'm like, okay, that's good. If you don't have a thick skin, you're not going to survive that to that point anyway, right? But it's, the, other, it's so nice though. the other thing that's interesting to me, and if Mark Zweig was listening to this from Zweig, <laughs> Sweet group, and I'll and I'll call him out on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Great guy. <laughs> He's been soapboxing about this. Why in the world do they call it AEC? The C has nothing to do with the nature of the AE. If you call it architecture, engineering, and consulting, there are some professional services alliance, but architecture, engineering, and construction, they couldn't be more different. Ar- architects and engineers are different. Technically-minded architecture firms and design-minded engineering firms might have some, some parallelness to them, but yes. this doesn't fit at all. The, the approach and direct, so you shouldn't lump it together, but I think because we serve, as architects and engineers, we serve the construction industry, which, by the way, yeah. holds the largest number of assets in the United States even if you add Apple and Google and Microsoft and Amazon all together, there's still more trillions of dollars in assets of just building infrastructure than all of those combined in terms of cap. Um, I'm sure there'll be some fact checkers on that, but that's the last. (laughs) But anyway, they, they don't go together. So I love hearing that your analysis, you know, it sounds like it's partly your DNA and partly the nature of the work and you mentioned to me that you like straight talk. Straight talk is part of your brand and why that matters. How does that relate? Like, talk about that for a minute. How is that part of your brand and why does that matter? You know, it's it's funny because straight talk has almost become like a trigger phrase. Um, it's to the point where sometimes I'm always reluctant on using that phrase because I, I've seen times where it's a very attractive phrase to toss around. Um, and sometimes people that are not necessarily practice, practicing it use it. And I think that kind of does well a disservice to it. Um, somebody once told me, um, I, I also don't like it because I don't want it to have a negative connotation. Um, I think sometimes straight talk, it's a bad rap, you know, to where people think, okay, well, that means you have an attitude. Right. Um, and I oftentimes say, no, not at all. Um, I think the way that I've been described in the past is, uh, you know, diplomatic, but, but sort of very direct. Um, I'm always, I always use the diplomacy. Um, and I try not to knock the wind out of anyone with any hard truths, but I just always feel that it's better to, to hit the issue head on. Um, instead of leaving things to fester, because I find that that passive aggressive approach gets people into a lot of trouble and things tend to fester. Um, it creates a lot of problems. And so I've always felt that, and I do this with our customers, uh, quite a bit. 
they like they they're always going to know where I'm coming from. And as I said, I mean, I'm I don't ever hesitate to tell anyone we should stop doing something, even if I think they don't want to hear it, because at the end of the day, I kind of I feel like you're serving people more effectively and you're serving customers by being brutally honest. Um, but I'm always tactful about it. Mm. So there's a difference. I've seen people that use straight talk and they're not very tactful and you can make a lot of enemies. Yeah. I think you can do it tactfully and I always try to do it tactfully, but I just always would rather go to the core of the issue. Um, and I do that even with prospects when I'm talking with a prospective customer, uh, a lot of times, um, I don't like. I never hesitate to talk about capabilities. I never want to take a project that we can't do. Um, I never want to try to look bigger or like we have more capabilities and then possibly disappoint someone. So usually, right out of the gate, I think oftentimes people are kind of surprised at at how honest I am. Hmm. And I oftentimes joke that, you know, sometimes I think I talk us out of business. Uh, but I, I don't mind that because I kind of feel like if if you have to, if you have to exaggerate too much or if you have to lie, you're ultimately going to end up with a dissatisfied customer or a project that goes wrong. Yeah. So I always want to have just complete confidence and I want that customer to know this is what you're getting. This is what we can do. This is by when we can do it. Um, and I will and I, I will turn away business. Like we sometimes will have residential contractors that will reach out and they see construction marketing, which is sort of the buzz phrase that I use. Mm-hmm. And I'll usually turn the business away. And uh, as I said, we're so hyper-focused and a lot of it is just the passion behind the heavy construction but also the knowledge that I know that this is the one area where I know we can bring the mastery. We can bring the value. Mm -hmm. That's the value proposition. I kind of know residential. I've been around residential, um, but I don't feel like that's our strong suit. Yeah. Um, And it's also very different too, because you're dealing with consumers, you know, you're, you're dealing with, uh, business to consumer as opposed to business to business. Yeah, big difference. And also, John, to be to be very honest, um, one of the reasons that I even streamed down into the heavy side or the commercial side, whatever you want to call it, and got away from residential is because I I saw over the years so many so many folks that I I thought were really questionable targeting that industry. Um, a lot of them maybe are plumbers, small plumbers, small roofers. They don't know marketing. And I just, um, to be completely honest, I just, I felt there were people that were taking advantage of that Mm -hmm. and they were putting out their ridiculously cheap packages, monthly packages. For example, we're going to give you this, 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 and this for a hundred dollars a month. And I looked at the numbers and I thought about what it takes. And I said, that's not sustainable. So to me, it tells me, you know, I, I didn't want to compete in that space because I felt like we're going to be dealing with lowballers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think that that's not the model that we really were looking for from day one. And and I never wanted to be put into the position where 
to get down at the bottom of the swamp there that we would sort of have to lower prices and give somebody less value as a customer. I would much rather stay on the higher end of the game and give someone the value. Seth Godin calls it the race to the bottom where absolutely if you start, if your value proposition is low cost, you better be the low cost on the block in the state, in the country, and your model better allow for that. But really as a professional, it, it's a race to the bottom and nobody wins a race to the bottom. So um, certainly for those people listening that are from your industry, and, and there certainly will be uh, quite a few um, from your social media stream and those that are connected to you, talk for a minute about marketing and content uh, in the heavy construction world. So, um, geez, it's kind of a broad question. I mean, I could ask a lot of specifics how I, I think part of this boils down to firm mindset, construction company mindset. But for those customers you have, what does what does marketing in the heavy construction world and what does social media marketing, if at all, look like in the heavy construction world? And are people receptive to, to both? Hmm. Very complicated. <laughs> um, I, I will, I'll try to summarize. I mean, I guess the the big thing that you need to look at when you look at heavy construction companies, I mean, so you've got the equipment, you got the materials, you got the contractors, generally speaking. Um, If you're a contractor that's dealing with primarily low bid doing government work, uh, those folks primarily are not very receptive to marketing. I mean, historically, Mm -hmm. that's starting to change a little bit. Um, especially in these days, I think what's driving a lot of that is workforce development, this labor shortage, uh, even companies like that, that don't necessarily need to market to win work, realize that they need to market to become attractive to new employees, especially young people. Well said. Um, now, the, the equipment industry has always been a core because you were always trying to reach contractors and convince them to buy or rent your equipment. Same with materials to some extent. Um, So in other words, if you are supplying contractors, you've always had a need for marketing. If you were were a private contractor, you did have a need for marketing because of course you're trying to reach developers, uh, owners, et cetera. But um, we tend to work with interestingly a a pretty wide cross-section which uh, was a little bit surprising to me because I knew the equipment people had the need and the material people had the need, but contractors have actually been pretty receptive. Um, And I think part of that, the thing that has helped me in that area too is uh, especially people that have known me and my career path, they they sort of know that I get the contracting side um, so they don't feel like they're speaking to a marketing person. And yeah. Uh, yeah, they know that I know what it takes to get the business and, and, and so forth and all the dangers that you need to be careful of. Um, John, it's really, I, in summary, I mean, there's been a, an incredible transition. I mean, that I've seen over about 30 years now where on the surface, you're going from print to digital, mm-hmm. but you're also transferring between generations. 
uh, which is incredible. I think the millennials now have overtaken the boomers mm-hmm. in the workforce, from what I hear. Um, there's a lot, I mean, social media, the internet, uh, all those things have really changed the marketing game. Um, I remember doing brochures and ads, and I remember print trade magazines, and I'm watching a lot of things are becoming obsolete right now. So I feel like what we're doing and one of our big missions is helping people to cross that chasm mm. um, to where they kind of realize in, in, in the back of their heads, they know we need to get with a game where there's a lot of old school companies in the industry, especially depending on the sector and the region. Um, but they know, they know what they need to do, but they're kind of just struggling in a lot of these areas. Like, how do we do it? What do we have to do? Um, what does it mean to transfer and go from doing what you were doing marketing 20 years ago to what you need to do today? Are uh, you, how do we, Are you, know? you finding anybody doing print or is it, is it all digital or is it mostly digital? That's part it of getting is, the chasm, right? It is virtually becoming obsolete, John. Uh, I thought so, yeah. Brochures, I, it's, it's, it's hard to make an argument for why you need a brochure today. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen printing companies that have disappeared. Um, I'm seeing trade magazines, construction magazines specifically, that are uh, going digital by the day. It seems like there's at least three to six every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new model seems to be to become like a multimedia property. In other words, a website well that sends out emails and maybe has video. And then, of course, projects on social media. Uh, that seems to be the new model. Print is really hard to sustain right now. Sure. Um, even in, and, you know, one of the big challenges they face is the advertising model. Advertising revenues have gone down even outside of the construction industry for years. Yes. And, and that's what pays the bills because a lot of these magazines are free subscription. Right. And a lot of companies now, uh, no matter what you do, if you sell equipment or you're a contractor, uh, a lot of them are looking to cut advertising revenue and they're saying, hey, does that print ad accomplish what I need it to accomplish? Yeah. Um, so um, let's talk about social media for a minute because – you know, I'm connected to a lot of people in, in the AEC industry, but, um, you know, you're talking about this chasm and, you know, you've got this specific expertise in heavy construction and construction. And I didn't know it even until this minute that it that you were talking about it from the equipment side, from the material side, and from the contracting side. So that's a very broad niche. So you're like uh, three inches wide and 10 miles deep, right? In terms of your knowledge. <laughs> that's the way my business, that's the way our business is too. We're an inch wide and a mile deep. We do building envelope consulting and engineering. Could we do more? Sure we could. Have we? Yes, we have, but it doesn't make sense for us. I'd rather know a lot about a little and be an expert. But anyway, back on this. So yep. social media. Um, I know I have two questions. One, you got off Twitter. I want to know why you got off Twitter. But two, but before you answer that, what what value are you seeing for your constituents, your clients on 
Facebook, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, in ads, or is there one better than the other, or does it depend on the category? Because it's very important to our audience and very important to us as as marketing professionals. What are you seeing and what are you doing? I guess starting like from 10,000 feet, the philosophy that I've always believed in on social media is that you don't have to be everywhere as a company. I think it's better to find the areas where your audience is. And usually that's maybe one, two, possibly three platforms and master them and feed more into that machine. Because what happens is a lot of companies are either being told or they feel we need to be on every platform. But what happens is it's like everything else in life. You end up diluting your efforts if you're trying to hit five targets as opposed to funneling more content into two Mm -hmm. and more interaction into two. Um, and so that's always the place where I start out. We, anytime we have a customer, my first objective is always, I know generally the platforms that make the most sense, but I still want to look at their company in particular, their audience, their partners, their targets, and say, make sure, are they there? Are they on these places? Mm-hmm. Um, and generally speaking, so kind of moving, moving in a little closer, LinkedIn to me is number one. Uh, just because it is, it's business to business. It's a professional platform. There's not a, a lot of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's just very, it's business to business. There's not a lot of games and, and opinions and strange things stuff. going on. Collateral stuff, yeah, superfluous you know, stuff. Superfluous. It's very much focused on what are you doing as a business? And I think the industry loves that. And I know I love it because that's why a lot of us are there. We're there for business. Mm -hmm. Um, Instagram is really picking up an incredible amount of steam. I I see construction companies moving in there by Mm -hmm. the day. Mm -hmm. I think they're getting the message. Um, I think it's attractive because it's 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 image driven. Yeah, and um, not quite as wordy usually. Has a lot of benefits to it, but I think people are getting a little bit, uh, a little bit frustrated with a lot of the dissension going on on social media these days, mm-hmm. on some of the more politicized platforms like Twitter, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so down to Twitter. Well, let me let me go to Facebook first, and then we'll move to Twitter. Facebook, of course, is the eight hundred pound gorilla. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, we need to be on Facebook or we were told we need, well, you know, look how many users they have. Mm -hmm. I said, the problem is to me, Facebook, there's a lot of hype behind Facebook. Um, First thing you got to remember is a lot of people on Facebook are not looking to deal with businesses. Um, It started off as a place where you went to connect with friends and family. And then businesses jumped in because there were so many users. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I'm not really a big fan of on Facebook is the way their algorithm works. There's sort of a game going on. They want you to pay for advertising. They want you to sponsor posts. So they make it very hard for you as a business to get your posts seen, even by your followers. So you might have 200 followers and only 10 of them see your post. 
um, unless you get paid advertising, that is. And that's never sat very well with me. I kind of feel like if you got those followers, you earned those followers, you should be able to reach them. Mm. Um, we do have a few customers there that really believe in it. And it's like, okay, if you want to be there, we'll put you there. But uh, I can't get too much behind it for those reasons. Um, the other part is Twitter. Uh, Twitter is a unique platform. Um, it's to me, and yes, why I left Twitter. I was on Twitter for years. I had a number of our customers on Twitter. That's where I met you. I met you on Twitter. Absolutely. That was a, we had a great connection on Twitter, and I always appreciate it. And you, you always stood out to me because you're an executive in the industry that is doing a great job in that area, and not many are as vocal. And I thought that was a real strong point. Um. But Twitter, Twitter is a great place when you want to share links to content, you know, maybe if you blog or if you're a magazine. Um, and I use Twitter for years and, uh, and I built up a pretty decent following. Um, but you know, what happened is Twitter is just, uh, they'll never tell you this. You never know for sure how many users are on these platforms. You almost just have to sense it and watch it and observe I felt like Twitter's user base was declining. And I felt like, um, and I still feel, it's become very politicized. Um, it's become a place that is is just, it's almost impossible to escape the sort of the political and social issues of the day, um, which I think for a lot of people has really become exhausting and people are kind of looking to get away from that. Mm. And if you're a company... And if you're a construction company or whatever kind of company you are, you want to stay very far away from that. You don't want to, you don't want to get into the fray, so to speak. Because in Twitter, I mean, if you step on the third rail, you can have major, major consequences as a company. Sure. I've I written have, about that in the past. I'd like to see that. I, yeah, there's a lot of interesting observations there, Brian. I, you know, they, you know, the old phrase was Twitter's your billboard. LinkedIn's your office lobby, Facebook's your living room. Um, you know, Instagram is your personal camera, right? Um, I do like the visual nature of Instagram. Um, let's talk about Twitter for a minute. To your point, what I have discovered on Twitter, you definitely have to be committed to Twitter. I, I found that the blog that I write is, is well positioned on Twitter. So a link, like you said. Um, and I find as a company, just my observation, I find as a company, and Josh, my social media manager, he says this, it, it's really about the leader of the brand individually being committed to posting on Twitter and the company follows that. But I find the company tends to not pick up, well, I think we got 1,270 followers or something, um, which isn't bad, but um, I find that it's... I find that the company posts get very little traffic. What gets traffic is the leader. Of the, so like if Richard Branson posts, it'll get way more than Virgin America gets. Or if Gary Vaynerchuk posts, people listen to Gary Vaynerchuk. They don't listen to VaynerMedia on Twitter. You know, you know right. so it has a space. Um, and I do find that face, Facebook is interesting to your point. I, 
one thing I like about Facebook is the ability to target ads in a very specific way. So like I have a group called Building Envelope and I can pick Seattle, Boston, Austin, San Francisco, LA, people that are architects interested in this that are between 25 and 80 and male and female. And for 50 bucks, I've got a 24 hour ad that targets those audiences. But I have found very little fruit from it. Perhaps there's more fruit from the, the college kid or the person who says, hey, dad, I saw this company. You were looking for, uh, you know, more yeah. of an indirect referral, right? So social media is an interesting animal, but I do find people can say what they want about LinkedIn. And I think people have figured it out now, but I kind of knew for a couple of years that LinkedIn is the underrated high volume platform. LinkedIn gets more traffic for me and for the company than any other. And it sounds like you've found that as well, that LinkedIn. Absolutely. And don't you find that the, the that us, <clears throat> the, the, the people that dwell on LinkedIn, it's curated by the users more than any other social media platform. People do not respond well to Facebook type posts on LinkedIn, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, that's a big movement. You're right. And I, and I do see people that are start, starting to kind of violate that and they're getting a little too personal. Yeah. Um, and, and on LinkedIn, I think the majority still don't want to see that. And when they see that, that's a real trigger point. Yeah. And they'll just sort of this keep it on Facebook or keep it on Twitter. I think people love the professional aspect of LinkedIn, mm -hmm. you know, especially for those of us who love business and are really kind of business driven. Uh, and I know you and I both fall into that category. Um, that's one of the benefits of LinkedIn is that we know that we can talk business and we don't have to get into the weeds on other issues. Right. I agree. So did you get off of Twitter personally? mainly because you just felt like there's so much contentious discussion, it's hard to cut through that you didn't really find it worth your time so much anymore? That was the main thing, John. That was like, um, there, there really is, I mean, it's a shame. There's so much negativity, um, especially on Twitter. I just, I feel like there's a lot of complaining going on on Twitter and not many solutions. Uh, it's really become kind of a buzzsaw. Mm -hmm. but, but more importantly, like as I looked I always look at results at the end of the day. You know, what are you putting in? What are you getting out? Um, you, you drill down into those analytics once in a while to see mm -hmm. where things are. And, uh, you know, Twitter's an, an interesting place because, you know, I had over a thousand followers, but I, it would be strangely quiet. And as you start drilling down and you go to this granular, granular level and you start clicking on profiles, Twitter seems to be a place where people just disappear. Um, they haven't posted for eight months or 10 months. And you say, well, no wonder I haven't heard from that person. They're not here anymore. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of construction companies go that route too. I think what happens is they get on there, they don't see the results, they get frustrated and they abandon. Yeah. Um, and I was seeing that too, even with our customers. And uh, in fact, I got to the end of, actually approaching 2020 and I had two customers that were on Twitter and I knew what was happening with Instagram and I started drilling down into the results we were getting for them on Twitter. And I said, wow, I had to go to them and I said, listen, 
my advice is we mothball Twitter altogether <laughs> and we move you to Instagram. <laughs> there were companies on a tighter budget. They didn't want to expand into a different platform, but I wanted to get them better results. And I just felt like we are, felt like we're treading water with their companies on Twitter. We just weren't seeing much activity. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. And you, and I'll tell you what, John, um, it's proven here we are approaching 2021. Mm-hmm. The results on Instagram have been so much better. That's and fantastic so to know. Turned out to be a great move. That's really good um, to know. And that's what I did with my own profile. And it's funny you say that. You made a great point about the person as opposed to the company. Um, there are times when you need the company. No question. On social right. media, there's times when you need it. But you're right. At the end of the day, people always want to connect with people. And I, I find that, too, that – and you're a great example of this um, because I saw what you were doing on Twitter and I saw the interaction – and how active you are, when you could get the individual, whether it's the executive, whoever, the face of the company to come out from behind the curtain, people love that. And, uh, and I really think that as you look, you know, I mentioned the transfer of generations. We, we definitely were moving into a very different um, type of a generation. The new generation, the young people, they want transparency. They want authenticity. Mm-hmm. They don't want a nameless, faceless organization. Um, and this is really, this is, a, again, navigating the chasm. Mm-hmm. This is really a tough adjustment for a lot of us. Now, I'm a Generation X guy, a little bit old school in a lot of ways. but And, and the boomers are retiring, but there's still a lot of boomers. But for a lot of us, it's very hard to get into that mindset of, putting your face on social media, talking about yourself, using the first person. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is a, this can be very challenging for a lot of us. Sure. But the, it's what's kind of demanded these days. Well, it is. And in the end, it's, you know, I had told you back when we had our Q&A quite a while ago now, I said to myself, you, you published part of this, that if, if a solar flare wiped out the grid and, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn no longer exist. I would have been happy for every minute I had already invested in all of those platforms because at that moment, at the time, it was tangible. It was viable. And um, it doesn't really impede upon my work because of the way I go about it is organically. But um, it's really good to hear about that that Instagram comment you made. It's a very visual platform. Um, But in the end, uh, I like going back to a statement you made as we look to wrap up. Um, you, you talked about shifting companies almost to the mindset of being a media-based company. And I've made this comment. So, for instance, I was talking to a, a friend and, and client and a guy I really respect a lot. And he said, John, we have, we're a finance company that happens to do construction. And then you sound like a guy who really is a heavy construction guy who happens to be a marketer. And because we, <laughs> yep. we have to think like our customers, and uh, I think at heart I'm I'm a I'm a marketing and communications guy who happens to do professional engineering. And uh, mm. thank God for my staff, and thank God for all of our staffs and all of our people that support us yes. because we'd never get anything done otherwise, right? Amen. 
So believe it, you know, I say this every time, like I could talk on and on, believe it or not, we've gone for about an hour and 10 and I feel <laughs> like we're just getting started. But for the sake of my audience um, and for your sake, um, let's go ahead and wrap up so we don't put anybody to sleep. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Brian, is there any, is there any final comments, final takeaways you have anything you feel like, like the audience or your, your customers or just the, the world at large to hear, or um, are you, are you good with where we've landed? I mean, I, I would just say, I mean, you touched on the media company. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Um, we, to some extent, we all have become media companies. Uh, as, as the media continues to change, uh, and it changes by the day, the way that we deliver media, whether it's podcasting like we have here, mm-hmm. or it's a magazine, or it's an email that you send out, or it's a blog on your website. I think we've, we've moved into a place, some people use the term content marketing. Um, sure. That's, that's a real thing. And um, I used to use the term, but I think it's become more of a buzz phrase. I think what really resonates more with people is that one of the best ways to market for me, I think, is a philosophy, and I believe this for all of our customers, is when you can educate the people that you are doing business with and you want to do business with. Uh, We went from this period, you know, especially around the 1970s and the Mad Men, where we had a lot of uh, claims going on. Some were true, some were false, but a lot of them were things like we sell the best widgets or, you know, there was a, a lot of that going on. And I think over time in advertising, people sort of got frustrated with it. And I think where we are today as businesses is that we need to kind of shift that mindset away from telling people why we're the best and beating our chest about why we're the best and trying to trying to help people. Yeah. And helping people doesn't always mean it doesn't always mean helping them to do the work that you want them to pay you to do. Helping oftentimes could be just helping them to understand what it is that you do. Um, how do you work? How does your process work? If you uh, if you provide a specialty construction process. What does your job look like? How do you do it? How do your people do it? What kind of positions do you hire in the company? Um, so in other words, it's just, to me, it's a mindset shift. Uh, moving away from why we're great to how we can help you and, and this is what we do and this is what we're about and allowing people to make the decisions based on they like what they see out of you. They like how you operate. Yeah. Um, so I feel like we've kind of crossed that. And I, I try to do that. that. That's why oftentimes we'll lead with creating content. I think at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I like that. That, you know, I would say the look how great we are is more of an outbound marketing um, approach. And how can we create value for you is more of an inbound approach. And the inbound always, to me, is far more beneficial than the outbound because the goal is to ask, what is best for the customer? What is best for the user? How can I create value for you? How can I work with you in your, in your instance as a marketer? How can I create visibility and awareness for you 
for the benefit of your constituents, those who will buy equipment or buy heavy construction from you. So they will come to you and, and they'll, they will be informed and not misinformed by an external thing that it has an, some image created to it. So that's a great place to leave this at. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your attention. Um, he is Brian Fraley with Fraley Construction Marketing. You're on LinkedIn, right? Yep, LinkedIn, Fra Instagram. Fraley's on LinkedIn. Your company is on LinkedIn and Instagram primarily. You, you have a Twitter profile, but you're not actively using it. I'll put all of this in the show notes um, with the relevant links for you. Um, are there any other platforms, blogs, or YouTube, any other sites that you're available that we should know about? Facebook. Facebook really is the big one. And, uh, you know, we've got a blog on the website. People can uh, type in an email and subscribe. That's fantastic. Well, you have just um, spent another uh, hour, 15 minutes with the Creating Structure podcast. We really appreciate you listening. Brian, I can't thank you enough for your time. I really appreciate it. I, I hope it's been good for you. It's been great. I hope you managed through the snowstorm that's, that's on its way or already there. And, and thanks. We'll catch up later, okay? Yep. Thanks for the opportunity, John. Okay. Thank you.